Does anyone need a Bible before we get started? No? Okay, we're reading from Romans chapter 8, picking it up from verse 17. Last week we learned that those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God, and the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So reading from verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. <clears throat> for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Hi, church. I hope you've had a great week. And um, as... Um it was lovely um, just hearing um, Rob talk a little bit about me wrestling for this passage on <laughs> at home group. And then uh, at the break, uh, Kay came up, who's a part of our home group as well, and prayed uh, with me or for me. So um, what a great privilege we have to be brothers and sisters in Christ and to have a home group where we can love and support each other. Um, yeah, I'm, I get really touched by that kind of stuff. So anyway... Alan, we're kind of like a, we're, I think we're bonded now, we're like a pair, we're like a team. You're going to Bible read every time I pray, every time I preach, okay. All right. Well, I want to, I want to start by saying that rugby league was a really important part of my childhood. Like from my early days, I apologise if you're not a rugby league person, but, but from my early days, I remember my mum and dad cheering on the St. George Dragons, and on special occasions, we'd go for a meal up to the Leeds Club and we'd peer into the trophy, tab tab uh, trophy cabinet. It was full. St George had a trophy cabinet. It was full of trophies. And the walls had images of famous players. They called them their immortals. And above them, uh, their team song uh, was written out. I was like, I won't, I'll try singing, but excuse me. Oh, when the saints... Come marching in, oh, when the saints come marching in. Anyways, uh, 
In 19, then, in 1966, the Cronulla Sharks came into the, into the competition uh, and they became my team. My family scoffed, but I didn't care. The boys in the blue, black and white were, were my heroes. You know? My younger brother joined me and, and we longed for them to win the grand final to, to bring glory to themselves and to us. But our hopes of early glory were not realised. A few times we came oh so close, oh, but, but so close that it hurt. And every season began with new hope. Oh, this year will be the year. Then we groaned as we realised it was not going to happen. And we muttered, well, there's always next year. The team and its supporters became the, the target of ridicule. ridicule. I mean, one year there was, there was a giant dust storm and one of the famous TV commentators said, well, you can blame that on Cronulla because someone left the trophy cabinet open. <laughs> so. Then in 2016, after 50 years of pain, the Sharks made the grand final. We were to play the Melbourne Storm. And my brother, nephew and I had tickets. I mean, the anticipation, the train ride to the game with all the other supporters, the build-up, the mix of hope and dread, then finally the game. It, was, it, it ebbed and flowed and I'm getting emotional again. And we cheered. And when we hit the lead, uh, when we cheered when we hit the lead and we groaned when the storm hit back, and it was close, but in the end, we won. The feeling was awesome. I mean, the Sharks' song echoed in the stadium, up, up, Cronulla, the boys in the black, white and blue, as we celebrated. And we watched with tears of joy as the, player and the players and the coach celebrated with each other. And then they came around and they acknowledged all us fans. We were part of the victory we shared in the glory. The whole of the Shire celebrated for weeks. Like awe and glory. We humans love it, don't we? We're always looking for something glorious, something awesome. But here on earth, we only get tastes of it. The feelings I had in 2016 are now a memory that the moments passed. Last night, the Sharks lost in a final game. And I'm back to muttering, well, maybe next year. You know, a beautiful sunset. Kathy Freeman winning gold at the Cindy Olympic. Peking duck. All awesome, but fleeting. Temporary vapour. Why do humans seek glory and awe? Are we hardwired for it, or is it some random accident of nature? Does our quest for glory, for awe, ever have a permanent fulfilment? Or are we destined to keep grasping at moments stuck in some groundhog day cycle until we return to dust? Well, today, Paul reminds us that we, who have put our trust in Jesus, will one day be raised to experience the ultimate and eternal glory that we are designed for. And that will be our first point today. One, the future glory. 
but between now and then there will be suffering and groans of frustration, which will be our second point, the present groanings. And then Paul reminds us that we're not alone in our struggles, that in our weakness we have the Spirit's aid. And that'll be our third point. And finally, we'll land on some applications. But first, let's pray. Oh, Abba, our Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are, for what you have done through Jesus, for suffering that highlights all is not how it's meant to be, and for awesome experiences that point to future glory. But please open our minds and hearts as we open your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look, as we begin, let me say that I want how awesome our future glory is to be, is to be the foundation of today's message. So let's get to point one, the future glory. And we're going to look at verses 17 to 18. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his suffering, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Alan really um, helpfully pointed out that last week's passage ended with the verse, the spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God, or we are God's children. Now, Paul says, if we, that is, we who have trusted in Jesus, Christians, are children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs of Christ. I mean, one of the amazing things about about the Christian faith is that we are adopted children of God, the Father. And that also means that we're brothers and sisters of his son Jesus. And as a result, we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. I did a bit of a Google. Uh, Who is the wealthiest person that ever lived? It turns out it was the ancient king of Timbuktu, Mansa Musa. I know, right? Timbuktu. (laughs) It's fascinating. There's a professor from the University of Michigan um, who was asked to explain how wealthy was he? And he replied, richer than we can explain or comprehend. All the accounts can do is try to communicate in terms of unimaginable amounts of gold. Now imagine, imagine if we lived back there. And we were desperately poor and hopeless, and all of a sudden, Mansa Musu's son sought us out and said, Hey, you guys, you're now part of my family. My dad has adopted you. And not only that, as his children, you'll be heirs, my co-heirs. And kind of like, maybe we would shyly ask, How rich is your dad? Is it okay to ask what we will inherit one day? And he replies, glad you asked. We are wealthier than can be explained. And you will inherit more than you can ever imagine. It will be like, like wow, wouldn't it? 
Well, Paul, Paul is saying that, uh, it, that is what God has done for us. He adopted us. And because of that, we are heirs to God's glory, to Jesus' glory, which is in us. It is in us now, but not yet fully revealed. And maybe, like me, you ask, how good will it be when the glory we have inherited is, inherited is revealed? But like months and muscles, wealth, it can't be fully explained. It is beyond our comprehension. I want to explain to you how incredible it will be, but I can't, I can't even do that for myself. Even if I could comprehend it, I would not have the words to explain it. But what we can say, it is infinitely better than anything Mansa Musa could have passed on. He's long gone, isn't he? Along with any inheritance he left. It was all fleeting, a speck in eternity. It provided no permanent solution to suffering and death. Our inheritance, our share in Jesus' glory will be eternal, never-ending, complete. The superiority of our inheritance over earthly inheritance is beyond comprehension. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes about how we will be raised imperishable and we will be changed from mortal to immortal and that at that time, the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Mansa Musa's children received nothing from him that would make them immortal, imperishable. As glorious as Cronulla's victory in 2016 was, our team song, Up, Up, Cronulla, is so feeble compared to where, O oh death, is your victory, where, O oh death, is your sting. But the fullness of promised glory is, is a future event. And now we get glimpse of it, glimpses of it, fleeting moments when we feel filled with awe. And we constantly look for something awesome, not because of some quirk of nature, but because we were made to glorify God, to be in awe of him. Yes, we are hardwired to glorify God. And anything else we glorify will fail us, ultimately will fail us. That's why heaven is so awesome because we will be constantly, forever, eternally filled with awe at the glory of God. And we in Christ do have a destination and there is a future hope and it's a practical hope. One of my favourite sayings is that if, if a solution's not practical, it's not spiritual. Our hope is practical. The Spirit uses it to encourage us. Jesus himself, before going to the cross, looked towards the future glory, 
Look at his prayer in John 17, just before he made his final journey to Jerusalem. Looking at uh, John 17, verses 4 to 5. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. One of the songs we sing here often is King of Kings. And it says that to reconcile the lost and redeem all of creation, you, Jesus, did not despise the cross. For, like, how did he do that? For even in your suffering you saw to the other side. Paul says that we, like Jesus, can look to the other side because our present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. But I do want to be clear. This is not to minimise the pain of suffering. No. It will cause groaning while we wait for the return of Christ, which is our second point, the present groaning. I'll start by looking at verses 19 to 21. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Creation itself knows that something's wrong, that things just aren't the way they are meant to be. It is subject to frustration, not by its own choice. When humans sinned, God's judgment included a curse on creation. Again, not by its own choice, but because Adam and Eve chose to sin. And God subjected creation to frustration. Look at Genesis 3.17, where God tells Adam and Eve, Cursed is the ground because of you. The Garden of Eden, paradise, was lost. And now it is in bondage to decay, to the cycle of life and death, whether it be plants or animals. Life, death, decay, on and on. The struggle for survival, a constant search for food and water, the weak killed by the strong, earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanoes, floods, droughts, pandemics, Frustration after frustration. We've seen it this week, haven't we? The death of Queen Elizabeth II, may she rest, or the II, Queen Elizabeth II, may she rest in peace. Seventy years a queen, but she was subject to death, to decay. 
And now we have a new king and he too will die. But creation knows it will not be this way forever. Creation knows that it, we, are not stuck in an endless, meaningless cycle of frustration. No, it waits in eager anticipation for the children of God to be revealed. Look, why is, why is, why, why? Is creation like myself and my brother at the football match waiting to see who will win or, or to see who will or won't be saved? No, no, no. It waits to be free of our sin as much. It wants to be free of our sin as much as we do. It wants to be redeemed to the way it was always meant to be. Look again at verse 21. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. When the children of God are revealed, creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay from the curse of sin and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. It will share in our freedom and glory in an eternal peace that will free, that will be free from all frustration. Again, I was like, we don't have really words to explain it, but Isaiah, Isaiah point, painted a word picture for us. Let's look what he said um, in Isaiah eleven six to nine. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. A little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. No wonder creation waits in eager anticipation. In verse 22, Paul continues. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right, right up to the present time. We, again, we Christians, know that the whole of creation has been groaning as in a child, as in the pains of childbirth. I, kinda, I, I think most people recognise that the earth has, in a sense, been groaning. And we talked a bit about the frustrations it's been subject to because of our sin. You know, the news, like the news is full of stories about the impact of deforestation, overpopulation, greed, animals becoming extinct, floods, droughts, fires, it goes on and on. And the common opinion is that the earth is groaning as it approaches destruction because it cannot survive the impact of humans, of, they may not say it, but of sin. But that is not what Paul says. Paul says it groans as in the pains of childbirth. The worldview sees hopelessness, but not Christians. Paul says we know 
that God's purpose, his promise, is the new creation. Don't get me wrong. This does not mean that we Christians are not to be good stewards of creation. That remains a fundamental part of God's purpose for us. I mean, we, of all people, need to be caring for and looking after God's creation. Our sin impacts on creation and through that other people. If we are to love God and others, then we are to love and care for creation. God made creation for us. It's a gift, a reminder of his glory. We're not to trash it for our selfish desire to satisfy our fleshiness. But we know that ultimately creation will be freed from the bondage of decay. Jesus' resurrection has ensured our resurrection and the restoration of creation. Creation's future hope is really tightly locked together with ours, which prompts Paul to refer once more to our eager expectation for the return of Jesus. Let's look at verses 23 to 25. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We, who had the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we also eagerly await for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Like creation, we long for the coming liberation from decay, from suffering and frustration and the endless search for satisfaction, from sin and the cycle of birth and death. For this hope we were saved. As Christians, the Spirit causes us to look to the future, to our final destination, because that is where the Spirit is leading us. The Spirit reminds us that our present sufferings are not worthy of comparison with the glory to be revealed in us. And this aids us in our present suffering. We are God's children but the full realisation of that is yet to come. We have the first fruits, the initial taste of the Spirit, but the fullness of the Spirit is yet to come. As we eagerly await the return of Jesus, we're still faced with the reality of suffering. We experience the pain of death. We feel the pain of knowing that not all will be saved. We experience dark times. I mean, some of the greatest Christians have suffered greatly from depression or with depression. People like Paul Bunyan, have a Google, read his story, read his theology. And the past week has been like particularly difficult for me. This year has been a year of deaths, like an impending deaths of people and animals I love. 
And lately, it just seems to have caught up with me. Intellectually, intellectually, I know my present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in me. But it doesn't always feel true. And sometimes life just feels relentlessly hard and the future seems impossibly far away. And I'm weary and inwardly I groan like, really, God? Is this your will? Paul knows suffering and now he points us back to the Holy Spirit which brings us back to our third point or brings us to our third point. Which is the Spirit's aid in verses 26 to 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. In the same way our hope for the future glory helps us, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. In our weakness we do not know what we ought to pray. Like me, Ardreen, I really, God, is this your will? Or God, why don't you save them? Or God, why all this suffering? And there are times when we just don't know what to pray for. And Paul says, it's okay. The Spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans. See, God knows our weaknesses, our frustrations, our limitations. He knows our hearts and the mind of the Spirit. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. It's like he bridges the gap between our weakness and God's power, between our present groaning and our future glory. In Luke 22, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying just before he's arrested. It's a remarkable passage. Let's look at it together. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. I mean, wow. I just like, I read that and I go, wow. Friends, when our cup is too much to bear, we're not alone. I mean, how can we mere mortals pray as Jesus did? And Paul says that we can't always pray what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit can and does on our behalf, and he knows the perfect will of God. The Holy Spirit is on our side, 
And like the angel in Luke 22, he strengthens us on our road to the future glory. Romans 8 is a remarkable part of the Bible. And next week, Alan is going to follow on from today's passage to show us how God can use all things for his glory. But for, for, but for now, let's close with three applications. So our first application for today is to let our suffering be useful. Well, I don't know if you noticed, but I kind of skipped over the part of verse 17 right at the beginning where Paul tells us there is a condition to sharing in Jesus' glory. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share Christ's, his suffering, Christ's suffering, in order that we may also share his glory. Now, Paul has written extensively about that in the previous chapters of Romans, about, about sharing in God, Christ's suffering, about how Christ suffered. And if you want to revisit that, I encourage you to go back to the first seven chapters of Romans or, or listen to our series again. Yeah. But what we do know is that Jesus' suffering was exceedingly useful for our salvation, wasn't it? So maybe let me explain what I mean today by let our suffering be useful with a concrete example from right here at Lake Mac. Ellis and Anne, over the past few years, have faced huge sufferings, and they still do. Ellis with cancer and Anne with severe illness, Anna spent weeks in hospital where she, Alice and their son Chris shared their hope with other patients, with visitors, like other patients' visitors and their own, and the staff. In fact, it doesn't really matter where they are. They let God make their suffering useful in order to win people over to salvation through Christ. And I know they're not alone. I, I know there's lots of you using your suffering for the sake of Christ. Throughout history, God has used suffering Christians for the good of the gospel. He used Paul that way, didn't he? All the apostles. So, so, so friends, you know, through the aid of the Spirit, let's let our hope shine when we suffer. Not so that people think that we're good, but so that they will see how good our God is. Our second application for today is and know that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Be encouraged that the Spirit aids and intercedes for us in our weakness. The passage doesn't say that he takes away our weakness. I mean, we saw with Jesus, it didn't even take away his anguish for Jesus. 
rather that he helps us in our weakness by interceding on our half or on our behalf through worldless, through worldless groans, praying that what we ought to pray but do not know how. Look, if that's, if that's the place that you're in now, it may, f may not feel like it. But the Spirit is interceding for you. And we would love to pray with you too. And look, if you aren't in that place, praise God. But know that sooner or later, we will all be there. So maybe let's prepare as best we can. Maybe we can commit some triple O verses to memory for those times. Or jot down references and put them on the inside of the of your, uh, cover of your Bible. I mean, Psalm 27 is one of my favourites. And it, it, it's, you know, at the end, it, it, at the end, nothing's sold for David, but he says, I, I will wait on the Lord. Whatever speaks to you in times of darkness... Or maybe they'll learn, we'll learn the words to your favourite Christian songs. I started doing this last year and it's been really, really helpful. Like for me, spiritually. But Sharice doesn't complain near as much about my singing in the shower. <laughs> How good's that? It's a win-win. <laughs> Look, our final third point for today is let our awesome and our suffering point to Jesus. Maybe this week you will have an awesome experience. For me, it can be seeing our orchids in flower or an amazing sunset or enjoying a great meal with Sharice. And maybe for you it will be like, like achieving a, something successful, a success of some sort. A great home-brewed beer or fine wine, you know. Or finding wonder in your kids or skydiving, I don't know. Whatever rocks your boat in a non-sinful way. Or maybe this week you're nowhere near that and you feel weighed down by life like I have with all the deaths lately, or, or feeling endlessly tired with parenting, or unwell or in chronic pain, or suffering with anxiety or depression. And it all feels too much, and, and even praying seems impossible. Look, either way, it's pointing to Jesus, to our future. Our awesome is saying that we are people designed to glorify God, to be filled with awe, and our fleeting awesomes are just first fruits of the eternal, never-ending glory and awesomeness we eagerly await for. On the other hand, our suffering is pointing us to the reality that we are subject to frustration that all is not how it's meant to be and we, and we long for it to end. So in our suffering, we also eagerly await for the liberation from bondage and decay into the never-ending glory and awesomeness. 
let our awesome and our suffering point to the future glory. I'll finish by praying. It's a little bit out of Revelation because it's kind of awesome. <laughs> Let's pray. Our gracious God, we eagerly await for the new heaven and the new earth where we will be your people and you will be with us, where you will wipe every tear from our eyes, where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. A glory, glory to Jesus. Amen. Some questions from Al this week. Oh, Anna, good stuff. Oh, no. No, it's good. It's good. <laughs> um, just verse 17. Yeah. Um, I, may I kind of paraphrase that? Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, when, when I first became a Christian, I did not expect that I'm going to get the suffering. The suffering is not something you put your hand up for. Yeah. Jesus yeah, did. Um, for us, so he gave us an example. So yeah. um, as Christian life progressed, you think, oh, you know, I'm doing something wrong because things are, don't look good. So I just wanted to, uh, I was looking at it and thinking, well, instead of saying if indeed and, and not looking at it as, at as a condition, it's like a given, mm. we will indeed suffer with him. Mm. And because of that, we will be glorified with him. So, mm. I don't know what you think of that. Ah, uh, totally, totally. <laughs> yeah, thank you. No, I totally agree with you. I, th I think on one level, it speaks of a very specific type of Christian suffering. Um, you know, Christ suffered ridicule, rejection, abandonment, persecution. So I think on one level, it's saying, hey, there's a type of suffering that maybe other people won't, well, definitely other people won't suffer. Uh, of course, it's a very specific Christian thing. Um, as we carry the gospel, we will be um, likely be rejected, abandoned, ridiculed, uh, and that hurts a lot. But there's also, on the other side, there's also the reality that we're just going to suffer. Uh, and I mentioned Paul Bunyan before. Um, you know, like, suffering is not a sign that we're doing something wrong. It's kind of like, uh, like I read, you know, Romans 8, and it's up until, up until that verse, where up until that little bit where he says, if we suffer as Christ did, I'm like, sign me up. <laughs> I'm ready. And then it's like, well, hang on a second. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I thank you, Anne, for sharing that. That's, that was great. Um, just a question. I, I struggled with verse 17 the most out of this, but <clears throat> one of the things is um, if you're an heir to somebody, they have to die for you to inherit something, hmm. and God's not going to die. Ah, so but, Jesus, hmm? but Jesus did. Jesus died, and so making us co-heirs. So, and, and in a sense... Look, my, my, you know, my, my mum's, my mum passed away in um, April this year, and my dad's 95. He's not that far away, and um, and we're already like I'm already an heir to him. Yeah, I'm already an heir. He doesn't have to die for me to be an heir. 
and he doesn't have to die for my brothers to be co-heirs. We're heirs already. So, so Christ dying made us brothers and sisters, made us children of God, and, and God's pleasure is to pass on that inheritance to us. Does that make sense? Oh, that's very, that clears it very well. Thank you. Yeah. All good? Thanks. Thanks, guys.